Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week on Primarily 2020, we're going to be talking about the politics and the policy surrounding immigration. We have talked about immigration on this podcast before, but um, since then, quite a lot has happened and there has been a lot of continued activity um, and controversy around um, the detainment of immigrants, the continuing crisis at the border, the behaviour of CBP and ICE um, in their um, horrifically inhumane handling of uh, immigrants uh, across the country. And of course, immigration has become a a big topic in the uh, primary debate that was held last week. So I thought it was worth spending some time digging in a little bit more into where we stand on immigration policy at the moment, what the actual politics um, of immigration are around America's public opinion of the issue, um, and how Democrats should be talking about it. Um, Before we get into that, I'm going to do a really quick news roundup. But also, um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time um, before we talk about the issue in detail, talking about what you can do to actually be helpful. Um, If you're anything like me, um, I find the behaviour of America as a government in my name so reprehensible and uh, disturbing um, that it it, it almost makes me feel paralysed with... um, just the horror of it all. Um, So I thought before we go into talking about immigration in general, um, it would probably be helpful if I just give you a a few specific concrete actions that you can take or organizations that you can support um, who are doing great work on the ground right here and now, even before the presidential race. So stay tuned for that. In the news this week, Donald Trump hosted a July 4th celebration in front of the Lincoln Memorial in D.C., To fund this event, Trump reappropriated $2.9 million in national park fees collected as admissions fees for the parks that were intended for maintenance of our national parks. VIP tickets to this event were handed out to Republican National Committee members and political donors. On both counts, the handling of this event may have been unlawful as presidents are not normally permitted to use public funds for political reasons, nor to reapportion money in this particular way. In any case, the celebration suffered from torrential rain and thunderstorms, so it appears that attendance may have been quite low, although it's hard to know for sure since the camera at the top of the Washington Monument, which is normally used for gathering crowd shots of events on the mall that allow the police to come up with accurate estimates of attendance, was mysteriously disabled shortly before the event began. Um, I hope you and your family celebrated a delightful 4th of July celebration this week. Um, I can tell you that I um, myself went to the uh, Democrats Abroad July 4th barbecue last week and had a fantastic occasion. Um, but I have been struggling to celebrate in an uh, un, uh, uncomp- un, un unconflicted way um, America this year, um, as I have been really troubled by reports of um, the abuse of detainees and migrants at the border and in our detention facilities, um, as will be discussed in this episode. I want you to know that um, there's a lot of optimism um, for what we can do to be helpful um, and find a better way forward for immigration um, that you will hear as we go through this episode. Um, But if you, like me, are feeling distressed about um, America's um, treatment of immigrants, um, both in the border and elsewhere, 
I wanted to give you up front a couple of useful things that you can be doing right now to make a difference here and now. Um, there are some organizations that are doing wonderful work, and I would encourage you to make a donation um, uh, if, if that is an issue that is, that is troubling you as it is troubling me. Um, first of all, Save the Children um, is doing some work to um, deliver immediate humanitarian aid to migrant children and families. Um, it works with partners locally to make sure that people have um, urgent things like hygiene kits, diapers, clothing. Um, they run children's play areas at transit centers transit centers in New Mexico um, for um, children who are leaving detention centers. Um, They are highly rated by charity watchdogs um, and I would highly recommend that if um, the welfare of children is is a concern to you, um, migrant women and children in particular, but children generally, um, that you throw some money their way. Um, Also, you may have heard me talk previously about um, RACES, the R uh, Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. That's R-A-C-R-A AICES. Um, RACES is a nonprofit that focuses on providing legal services to um, immigrant communities in central and southern Texas, um, where obviously a lot of the border activity is taking place. Um, It has a lot of lawyers on staff, and it's often the first port of call for migrant families who are um, trying to negotiate the legal process. Um, You can, they are highly rated by uh, charity watchdogs, um, and you can throw them some money um, if that's a concern. There's another organization called Freedom for Immigrants, which is an advocacy organization. Um, They have their own uh, immigration detention visitation program, um, helping to shine the light on the conditions in detention centers around the country. They also have a national hotline where people can call to report any um, abuse or suspected abuse. Um, They have a a range of volunteers taking hundreds and thousands of phone calls every month from uh, detainees or their loved ones. Um, They also have a a bond fund um, which can help fund um, cash bonds where that's that's possible for immigrants to to release them uh, so that they can fight their immigration cases. outside of detention. Um, It is a, a small charity, but I highly commend them to you. And finally, a charity that I have on, well, not a charity, an organization that I have on my monthly donation um, automatic payment system is the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU um, is focused on the legal, defending the legal rights of um, migrants, both documented and undocumented. Um, They are coordinating a lot of the um, class action lawsuits that we're seeing challenging government policies at national level. Um, They've filed a bunch of such lawsuits lawsuits and and they have been one of the organizations that's been therefore able to force a lot of um, positive decisions um, from judges. It's not a charity, it's an organization um, which does political activism and therefore can't be registered as a charity, but they do also have a foundation arm. Um, But if you would like to fund the legal work that's being done to try and overturn some of these policies, I I highly commend their work to you. Um, So hopefully, um, if you're anything like me, the feeling of being able to do something constructive will will make you feel better about uh, moving forward and uh, happy 4th of July and happy Independence Day to us all. I want to welcome back a friend of the pod and podcast favorite, Asha Subas, um, the immigration expert and lawyer who has been with us on a couple of previous podcasts, including last week's Debate Rotch. Um, welcome back, Asha. 
Thank you. It's always so good to be here. Always good to have you. Um, I was particularly keen to get Asha back on this week because we didn't really have chance to dive in detail into one of the major themes of the debate last week and indeed of the race so far um, and certainly of, of Donald Trump's own politics, which is immigration. We've talked on the podcast before in uh, a previous episode with Asha about kind of the history and heritage and and politics of immigration, but things have moved on quite a bit since then. So I thought it was worth coming back to it and talking a little bit more about the issue, especially considering um, I personally have been having a really hard time lately with some of the absolutely horrific images that have been coming out of detention centers, including images of of children, as well as the, um, of course, horrific photograph of um, a father and, and toddler daughter who had um, died on the crossing of the border. So um, there's a lot going on in this issue right now, and it's a lot of it is heartbreaking and difficult. Um, Asha, I was hoping maybe you could start us off by talking about kind of what's underlying this. Why has immigration become a bit of an emergency and a crisis um, in America right now? Right. So um, as I just before, but just for a recap, in case someone out there wasn't listening the first time, is that... Um, for a while, the United States had no real restrictions on immigration. That was through um, the Civil War period. Post-Civil War, there started to be some fears about controlling the immigration situation, um, that maybe America you know, didn't have enough for everyone. I mean, there was a huge amounts of you know, racial fears going on at the time that resulted in Jim Crow, but also um, trying to restrict you know, good countries, people from good countries coming in versus bad. I mean, all those laws kind of come into play 1880s through, you know, World War II. And then you had in 1965, as part of a bunch of the Civil Rights Acts, the Civil Rights Act about immigration, which said we're no longer going to have this kind of good country, bad country um, distinction if you meet the merits or requirements for immigration, no matter where you're from, you should be able to come into the country. And so you're seeing from 1965 until now a huge change in demographics um, because of that change in the law. And, and now you're seeing you know, multiple generations that have been affected by it, and it's changing what our population looks like. And I think that's why it's become such a big issue. Asha, we are seeing right now um, a very large number of um, refugee migrants on the border um, trying to cross from Latin America. Um, now, a lot of that is because there has been so much political instability and, and violence um, in some of these nations of Latin America. What's actually happening on the border right now? I'm hearing really horrific reports about conditions on the actual Mexico to America border. Right. So... Let's say that, and I'm going to reiterate this a lot because I think it's really important to understand, because we haven't done comprehensive immigration reform in this country, there's a lot of legacies and laws and powers in place from that really racist period in our history that you can still call upon and use today. Those powers have not necessarily been reduced over time. And so administrations, unfortunately, both 
Democratic and Republican, you know, Congresses, both Democratic and Republican, didn't really do anything to kind of clean this up and get rid of the loopholes um, and reduce the powers in this way. And so basically what happened is President Trump came into office and said, I don't like immigration from these countries. I don't want these people coming in and being part of our population. And so what you're basically seeing is a, a ramping up of a bunch of policies that have existed forever and laws that have existed you know, for a really long time is just being ramped up. And so uh, one big thing is metering. So this is the idea that um, at any border crossing, official crossing, they're only going to take X number of people per day. Everyone else has to wait. Sometimes, you know, some checkpoints are open. Sometimes other checkpoints are open. Everyone else has to wait on the Mexico side. And so then as people are running out of food or water supplies, they're getting frustrated. They're trying to find another way across that's not a, an official border checkpoint. So that's a big issue. It's really unsafe. I mean, lots of parts of our border with Mexico have rivers and canyons and desert. And they're not, you know, and it's large amounts of areas, so they're not very well monitored. So you could get lost in the desert for days. You could get swept up in a river and no one would really know for a while. And it's resulting um, with fatalities at the border. And that's what happened with Oscar and Valeria, the father and daughter whose who's tragic photograph we've all been seeing over the past couple of weeks. He he tried to present himself at a at a border crossing as a um as an asylum seeker as I understand it and was turned away and then in desperation wound up trying to to cross through the river and and drowned with his yes. young daughter. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and then so that's one big issue. Then the second big issue is even if you were lucky enough to get to the border, get in at a time, get seen um, and they found that you had, say, a credible asylum claim, um, they're still detaining you pending a bond hearing. So even if you get through and you actually talk to someone, and even if that someone decides that you may have a credible claim, you might still end up in some sort of you know, temporary holding facility until you have a hearing about whether, you know, you're a, a risk or a threat to the American population or whether they can, you know, let you go and settle in the population, uh, you know, until your case is heard. Uh, so then that, that's another issue is there's all these people just waiting for bond hearings. And when we say temporary facility, to be clear, these are not we're not talking about people there for a couple of days until they can get a hearing, are we? I mean, this is I mean, how long are people waiting? Is it months? Is well, it years? What's the time frame? Well, we're, well, right. So, I mean, the goal was right. Even in the Obama administration, there were definitely cases where people would end up getting like lost in the system somehow. And they or on deliberate policy, they would be there for a few days or eight days, you know, and then someone would slip through the cracks and be there longer. But, it, you know, it was supposed to be a temporary cell. Um, now you're talking about, I mean, you're hearing stories of, you know, 60 days, I mean, just really long, long periods of time in a facility that's only supposed to hold people, you know, for a couple of days. It's not set up at all. It's just kind of like if you were arrested for being drunk on the street and they put you in the drunk tank. But then yeah. all of a sudden it's the drunk tank is 
filled with people. There isn't proper room even for everyone to lie down at the same time. And then you're in there for, you know, months. And that's so that's what we've been seeing photographs of. There was a congressional delegation this week that went and and visited these facilities and they reported horrific conditions. As you say, they reported not enough space, space for people to actually lie down and sleep. They reported no blankets or shower or bathing facilities for detainees. And some of the people that we are detaining in this instance are, are children. Um, there was a report that came out of a, a pediatrician who um, was um, allowed to go in and um, treat some young children in a detention facility um, by court order. Um, and she reports seriously traumatized children, um, infants and toddlers um, as young as. Um, there have been many reports of older children, and when I say older children, I mean 8, 9, 10, um, being in sole charge of younger children, of babies and toddlers, um, because they've been separated from their um, caregiving adults. Um, how extensive, I mean, how much do we know about this? It seems to me that a lot of one of the problems that's underlying this policy is that we don't have a clear picture of how many people are in this situation or 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 a lot enough visibility into what their conditions are well right i mean you have the problem that until the house was taken over by the democrats there wasn't real hearings into this right hearings and investigations is one way to get some numbers um, but then what we found based on, you know, news reports, when the, there was news reports last year about this family separation and children being separated from their parents, and there was a big, you know, public outcry about that last year. Um, and the problem is, is it seems like the government itself isn't keeping good numbers yeah. and is not keeping adequate track. So you just kind of wonder what is going on. I mean, the basis for this is initially... Um, and the Obama administration, frankly, was doing this, too, is that um, there's a lot of laws and agreements about children and certain standards for facilities for children yep. that are not the same for adults. And so the idea was, well, we can't guarantee that standard for everyone. So in order to meet our legal obligations, we're going to take the children away and give them that standard. And we're going to give the adults a different standard. Um, and it's gotten a lot worse under the Trump administration because, you know, they're just doing anything and everything they can to keep as many people in detention and as little little um, out in the population as they can. So you're just talking about exploding numbers. Yeah. And there was, I mean, there was a, a video that went viral um, last week, I think it was, of a, um, a young Trump administration lawyer arguing in a hearing um, in respect of, of child welfare. Um, the, the court had previously ordered that children had to be kept in a safe, um, safe and sanitary conditions. And she had gone in front of the court and was arguing that safe and sanitary conditions did not necessarily have to mean that the children would be given toothbrushes or showers. Um, and the judges were quite incredulous at this, but they were just basically arguing that they have sole discretion of determining whether kind of basic sanitary requirements like the ability to clean your teeth should or should not be within um, the definition of, of, of a safe and sanitary condition. So, um, you know, what I keep coming back to is if this is what they're arguing in public, what's going on behind closed doors? Because um, they are doing a lot to try and keep visibility of this issue um, out of the public mindset. 
And there has also been um, recently a scandal with the um, Customs and Border Patrol Facebook group with about 9,500 members. Um, there's been a scandal in, in recent days in which they've been um, identified as being a, 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 a forum where um, virulently racist, hostile um, messages have been have been published. The CPB says that um, that you know it doesn't reflect their values, but it does reflect their membership. Um, so there's a clearly a culture problem going on. Even even leaving aside whether or not we are detaining people lawfully, where it doesn't seem that we're detaining people humanely. Right, and there's no real reason to detain, unless you're talking about fear of demographic change. There's yeah. no real reason to detain versus release into the population um, for a lot of these people, because many of them will have their paperwork and you know, you'll be able to verify their identity and they are no cognizable threat of any kind. Uh, they show up for their hearings fine. And, you know, there's GPS tracker bracelets now, which is, you know, can be a controversial uh, topic, but, you know, you can track people. There is really no reason to leave them in these types of conditions. But I think let's, so let, let's go into the reason because I, you're, you're absolutely right. There is no requirement in terms of public safety. There's no requirement in terms of risk of absconding, for example. 99% of the people um, who were, um, who were, released under an, an asylum claim did wind up showing up for their hearings because they want to they want to be granted asylum which means they need to go to a hearing um but that's not why this is happening um the 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 clear implication here to me is that trump thinks this issue is is a political winner for him um and it's worth us as democrats asking ourselves the question whether that's true um, the politics of immigration are obviously fraught. In 2018, Trump tried very hard to make this supposed caravan of terror coming up from Latin America, made that tried to make it the linchpin of his 2018 uh, midterm election. In that election, um, it didn't do the job he was hoping it would do. Um, healthcare was actually the issue that voters said they cared about it mo the most in that election, no matter which side of um, of the immigration issue you were on. And Democrats ran a healthcare-focused campaign and, and did very, very well. Politically, um, there is some evidence that actually immigration, because of all these stories that we're seeing and because of the increased salience of the issue, is now more top of mind for voters right now. Whether it will be in 2020 or not is is an open question. Um, Trump thinks this is a winning political issue for him because it, it rallies his base. Democratic views on immigration seem to be more complicated, but as a general rule, um, I was looking at some polling earlier that says um, that that shows that actually overwhelmingly de Americans do believe that immigration is is a net good for the country. What do you think? Is it is Trump right in thinking that um, demonizing immigrants is is going to be a political winner for him? Well, I think what is frustrating by this era and not just in immigration, but in many areas, is we know what works. We know how to make this work really well. Like you said, you know, if you, you do the hearings the right way, you put GPS bracelets on people who are hard to keep track of, um, you have the hearings in an orderly 
you know, manner and places that are accessible to people in a timely manner. You hire enough people, enough immigration officers and enough immigration judges to hear all the claims. You could actually make this look very orderly and process people fairly quickly through the system. And But you're not doing the things that we all know work. Instead, you're making it, uh, and you just, you know, Trump and this administration, is making it this complicated, huge, morass, icky, ugly thing to look at. And, and the worry for me is, is the more that you just call it like a mess, a problem, a, a thing that no one knows what to do with, you know, it's all that it actually makes people just throw up their hands and ignore the situation. Right. So it's it's basically a manufactured crisis because he thinks a crisis is to his benefit. Yeah. Okay. So what do we do about that <laughs> as Democrats? Yeah. I mean, not just on a policy point of view, but even just right now when we talk about this issue, Trump is trying to scare us and you know, right now it feels very polarizing. It feels like Democrats are saying immigrants are great. Um, you know, we should we should rally behind this. We reflect the values of our coalition. We reflect the values of equality and um, giving everyone a fair shot. Trump's on the other side going evil, bad, brown people. They commit crime. You know, they're not bringing their best. But it just feels like that's just exacerbating the problem in that we, we should have a broad majority consensus for treating people decently and, and doing the things that we know work, as you say. Um, it, it's hard to find a way through. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that I do blame kind of media or even these polling groups because it, we were looking at one of these polls or you circulated that one to me um what was the one that was really long it was like 60 pages yeah um, was, uh, it was the yeah. harvard harris mm -hmm. uh poll a lot of the questions on immigration is like were about illegal immigration they were so badly I phrased i hated that poll <laughs> I, I, I should I, was... I should say that one poll that i sent you was run by mark penn who is the pollster in the world i have the least respect for so <laughs> Yeah. Not yeah. And so I was like, why are you confusing these issues for voters even more? Like, don't you have a responsibility, um, you know, to to say things clearly? For example, I mean, I think that they were really targeted towards. Oh, yeah. Would you, for example, would you favor or oppose a mass action by the U.S. government to round up and remove thousands of illegal immigrants? But is that even the position? I think actually, if you look at it, it's to round up immigrants generally, detain immigrants generally, and then like sort them later, maybe. It's more yeah. the policy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the language used in this poll was was it was almost push poly. Um, yeah, would you favor, so the question was, would you favor or oppose a mass action by the U.S. government to round up and remove thousands of illegal immigrants from the United States? Um, and 47% said that they would favor that and 53% said they would oppose it. But the whole question is just, what? <laughs> yeah, or do you think U.S. immigration authorities have done a good job, fair job, or poor job dealing with illegal immigrants in custody? Yeah. Which then immediately calls to mind, associates illegal immigrants with this problem in the border, which isn't the case. It's a huge group of yeah. varied immigration statuses and varied, you know, legitimate claims. Yeah. 
Or here's one. So this question, should people, this, this one really burned me, should people with questionable asylum claims be let into the United States for years until their case comes up, or should they immediately be turned back to Mexico for staging? 62% people said they... 62% of people said they should be immediately turned back. But I was going, well, how do you know their asylum claims are questionable until they've been through a process? Right. Like the, the whole premise of the question makes no sense. The whole point right. is that we don't know if their claims are questionable because we haven't heard them. Right. And, and, and these are the classic conservative blending of issues um, where it becomes everyone who's in this mess is illegal. Right. Yeah. You know, they talk about it as if they're all illegal when they're not. Um, and then if you have polls reinforcing that incorrect point, then, of course, people believe it. And it all comes together for everyone. And, and I, yeah, so I do blame a lot of pollsters and the media for not clarifying the issues that people understand what's happening. Yeah. But I think it's interesting in a historical context. So Trump definitely believes that, and partly because this is where his base is, definitely believes that um, fear and loathing of migrants is a powerful motivating factor. But if you look at the historical record, if you look at, so I'm looking at some some Pew data, and I, I really respect Pew's polling, and I think it's a lot more kind of unbiased in its phrasing. Um, so here's here's a poll that says, um, on the whole, do you think immigration is a good thing or a bad thing for this country today? Now, 76% of Americans say they think it's a good thing, which is a high number in itself, but it's also a historic high. Six, so if you look back from 2000, sort of roughly 2001, when they started asking that specific question, that's the highest that that question has ever been. So, but But that could be a factor of polarization. It could be that people who don't like Trump are strongly inclined to favor immigration because he opposes it. It's hard to unpack where the politicization of this issue deviates from people's kind of changing and evolving understanding of, of immigration's role in society. Yeah, and I think it, it also is um, reflects how a lot more Americans, because of the changes in the laws in 1965, are connected to immigration um, than they were a, a few generations ago. So yeah. even if you yourself were not, you may have parents or friends or the person you married, family, co-workers. So there's a lot more people who are connected or experiencing immigration in some way. So here's, a, I think that's a really good point. Immigration is a bigger, pro immigrants and the children of immigrants are a bigger proportion of the population than they've ever been. And that is mm -hmm. the, as you alluded to earlier, that is the demographic change that Republicans politically are fearful of. Um, but, and I think they've been, they've been, so there are two ways you can approach that problem, right? You can approach that problem by trying to win over immigrants and the children of immigrants and try to bring some of that group into your coalition or you can go in on a maximalist strategy of trying to um, secure a higher percentage of the non-immigrant vote to make up for your loss in the demographics clearly trump represents the latter strategy there was a time and it was only a few years ago when republicans were seriously considering how to approach that former strategy which in the long run is probably more politically viable for them. Um, but they, they couldn't find a way forward to it because their caucus just didn't 
have a consensus around that and too much of their base is hostile to immigrants for them to be able to credibly create a less hostile environment and then Trump came and here we are. Right. And I mean, and I think it's important on the Democrat side to say, and I said this last time, but I'll say it again, is that we are aligned, the party generally around a few general key principles, you know, that immigration is a good thing, due process violations and putting children in cages is a bad thing. Yeah. You know, and and that sounds so simple, but we are aligned in a way that the Republican Party isn't on that. Um, And that is a strength. So let's move on then to the policy, Um, because we have failed to pass a comprehensive immigration reform package um, for for decades. Um, Obama didn't really have a credible opportunity to do it um, because of partly because of legislative time. Uh, he ran out of time doing healthcare and doing the um, shoring up the economy after the after the um, the financial crisis. And then we lost the majority and there was basically no time to do anything else. So he did protection for dreamers by executive order effectively and kind of just kicked the can down the road to the next, well, next Democratic president, not the next president. Um, even George W. Bush, before Obama, he himself had had aspirations of doing comprehensive immigration reform, but he couldn't get it done. Clinton couldn't get it done. Um, if Democrats are given the opportunity, what should a comprehensive package of immigration reform look like that would get us to a more equitable and viable situation for all immigrants, not just those who are undocumented? Yeah, I mean, I think as a starting point is that you you fund the personnel properly and you make the documents and uh, the categories for immigration as easy as possible. I um, mean, you know, the clarity and putting things into the public, you know, putting things into the sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So just cleaning up the paperwork and then making sure that there's enough personnel is, I think, the first priority of comprehensive immigration reform is just making these procedures as easy as possible. I mean, can some of that be done by executive action? Can a next Democratic president do, it sounds like there's a lot that can be done just by better running the system as it currently stands. Yeah, I I believe there is a lot that can be done by executive action, which is why, you know, the president in this immigration is one of the areas where who the president is matters a lot, even if you don't get Congress, because they have a lot to do with how the executive branch runs and can do a lot of things without Congress. Now, that's proven actually something that we might want to look at because that that power can be used for ill, as we've seen. And so maybe Congress should be stepping back in and taking some of that authority away from the executive to muck around so much with it. But yeah, I agree. I mean, the the president could do a lot on that all on their own. So let's talk about the potential presidents. Um, You talked about the the possibility of taking power away from a future president. Um, That's one of the things that um, it came up in the debate is is integral to Julian Castro's plan is he wants to remove a particular section of immigration code that would um, that would criminalize crossing the border um, and make it a civil rather than a criminal penalty. What else is in Julian Castro's um, immigration plan? I mean, it's a lot because he's clearly thought it 
all the way through. So some areas where I, I try to go through all the major candidates' immigration platforms as currently described on their websites. And um, where, where some areas that I was disappointed more candidates didn't talk about that he's just full in on is, for example, getting rid of the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. That's something you can do with executive order. And a lot of candidates have yet to discuss it, even if they have a paragraph or a few paragraphs on immigration policy on their website. Um, so I'm really glad that he addressed that. He didn't just address the dreamers. He had, you know, addresses a bunch of different protections for kind of refugees like TPS. Mm -hmm. um, he is really strong on a pathway to citizenship for every law abiding, you know, immigrant in the sense that not that they haven't committed a felony immigrant, um, not just certain sections, but that, you know, if you're here and you're doing good work and you've been contributing to society, then we should be offering a path of citizenship to as many people as we can. Um, really reforming uh, ICE and CBP and the DHS around immigration. Um, he has very long detailed plans on that. So just in general, I mean, the only thing that he isn't he doesn't harp on, which on my political views is a good thing, is that he doesn't have this huge long section on securing the borders. You know, he just he whereas other candidates seem to fetishize that a little bit and talk about drones and that sort of thing. He, mm -hmm. he doesn't have that emphasis. Okay. So Julian Castro, um, obviously being Texas-based, um, being a Latino himself, has a lot of credibility on immigration. He clearly has made it the linchpin of his campaign. It's the, the one issue on which he's really um, dominated the debate, I would say. And even Elizabeth Warren, who's famous for having a plan, um, she doesn't even have a plan on immigration. And when asked about it, she kind of just went, I, I kind of like Julian's. <laughs> so um, he's clearly led on that issue. The only other candidate so far to put out an immigration plan is Beto O'Rourke. Have you taken a look at his plan and how does it differ? Yeah, so um, clearly what happened during the debates is Julian Castro is the leading candidate on this issue, had his people go over with a fine tooth comb, you know, Beto O'Rourke's plan and was like, what are the major differences? Because I need to put, as I think one moderator in the debate said, uh, sunlight between us. And he looked at that plan and the, the two things that stood out to him, which are kind of similar things that stood out to me, is one, Beto O'Rourke does have a whole section on securing the border and how to make it more secure. And then Beto O'Rourke does not talk about decriminalization. Mm -hmm. On the border security front, I think I take your point um, about we perhaps fetishize border security a little too much. Um, on the other hand, people are potentially more balanced in their views of immigration. Um, and there is concern about border security. Um, is it necessarily a bad thing to assure people that at the same time, we're going to make sure that people coming into this country have a fair and equitable way of doing it? On the other hand, we're also gonna make sure that the borders are safe and secure. Um, I mean, it's not kind of my top issue. And actually we've done a whole bunch already to make the borders pretty darn secure. So it's not actually a huge problem. Um, but I kind of wonder from a political point of view, if it isn't necessarily um, a bad thing to just make clear that we want both a secure border and a fair and equitable process for people. Well, right. I mean, the Republican talking point is the Democrats want an open border. Mm. Or I don't know about Republican, but conservative right wing 
talk show type talking point is that Democrats want an open border. Maybe the easiest way to, you know, shut that down is to be like, we don't want an open border at all. We're going to have drones. We're just going to be cutting edge technology at the border, not some silly concrete or metal slat border. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I get that. Better border security. Yeah. Better border security. I, I, I don't know enough about psychology because the problem is, as you said, as far as I'm aware, we've done it. The borders are secure. I haven't yeah. heard, you know, many issues about, you know, a huge problem with people slipping in. For example, the same way that was happening in Europe um, over the past 10, 15 years. Um, I haven't heard about that many people kind of slipping into the country to the extent that we seem to have any sort of terrorism issue. It seems to be a homegrown. People are inspired at home. And to be clear, I mean, that's that's absolutely correct in terms of where undocumented immigrants are coming from, because I think it's something like two thirds of undocumented immigrants arrive, um, become undocumented immigrants, not because they unlawfully cross the border, but because they are um, people who entered the country legally, but then overstay their visas. So they're people who come in as tourists or on a short term working visa and then don't go home and disappear into the disappear out of the system. So um, even if secure reducing illegal immigrants where immigration were your primary objective the border probably would not be the place to start but it's just more symbolically resonant which is why trump is obsessed with his stupid wall and why why democrats are so um determined not to give him his stupid wall like in a, in a way it kind of doesn't matter that much one way or the other but we just keep arguing about it because the symbolism of it is so rich Yeah. And I would like to go to the symbolism of, I mean, and I hate to use this as a political point of children in cages. Yeah. Instead of going on to their territory and kind of doing, you know, a long protected battle about who can, you know, secure the border better. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the symbolism of it, but then there's the actual children in actual cages. And I would like to know how I can get them out right now. Um, and I think that's the other thing that's, that's politically, um, I, I, I struggle with this a little bit is because it's so distressing. It It's so horrific and distressing to see what we are putting young children and families and, and, you know, well-meaning vulnerable immigrants um what we're putting them through that it 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 just makes me want to look away and i think that's you know students of authoritarianism and totalitarianism will tell you that that what dictators often do is try to overwhelm you with um a surplus of a surplus of bad news to the point where you can't actually react to them anymore and i fear that we're getting to that point because when child when child separation was first announced as a policy people were righteously outraged it's a year later and we're still doing it and people are tired (laughs) and um yeah, I mean, I think the more you, he- unfortunately, the more you hear about something as a problem, the less likely you feel like it can be solved. You know, you just keep hear- hearing something's a problem, a problem, a mess over and over again. And I think that's why it's really important instead of, you know, going to the secure borders issue and also talking about immigration as a problem. I think it's really important to have a positive vision of something like, look, this is really easy to solve. We could solve, you know, as soon as I'm president, I can solve this tomorrow. 
Not all of it. Obviously, there's some people who don't have paperwork at all or any identity of documents. And then what do you do? But, you know, there's a lot of this that can be solved easily. I think that's a great way to frame it is actually our job as Democrats is to um, cut through Trump's political strategy of making us fearful and sad and point out that there are there are simple and quick and straightforward things that we can do to make things a lot better very quickly for a lot of people. And that's a very hopeful message. So good. Thank you for that. I needed that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one of the both frustrating and beautiful things about immigration as a policy topic is, yes, there's a lot of hard problems, but there's also a lot of easy ones. Just fix them. Yep. Great. Well, I think on that note, um, we will we will leave it there for immigration for today. Asha, I'm sure we will keep speaking about this issue as time goes on. Do you want to stick around for a few minutes and we can play the gut check game? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so this week, um, in honor of the 4th of July um, and our National Independence Day, I thought we'd have a little barbecue-themed uh, gut check game. I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, into which I have placed the names of all of the candidates who are running. Now, I was invited um, over the 4th of July weekend to multiple July 4th barbecues from different people that I really like or organizations that I really support. And I had to choose between them. And I got to thinking, what if I had to choose between an invitation from multiple Democratic candidates? How would I make that choice? So for the purposes of this exercise, you have been invited to two barbecues to celebrate Independence Day from one of the from the two candidates whose names I will pick out of the hat right now and I want you to choose between them basically that's the task pet check your gut and see who you whose party you would go to I have two names here so John Delaney and Tulsi Gabbard have both invited you for burgers who'd you, who who would you go with okay you have to help me with John Delaney he was in the first debate yeah, he was the. He, I'm sorry, John. Yeah. He, was the, he was the bald one. Yes, yes. All right. Former I got Maryland, him. I'm picturing former, him. Former Maryland representative. Okay. Um, can we play this again? Because I'm going to say Tulsi Gabbard, and then I want to say how much I am highly suspicious of Tulsi <laughs> Gabbard. But I think from a barbecue perspective, throwing yep. a barbecue, you know, I mean, I don't know if it would be luau themed or. <laughs> Uh, Hawaiian themed in some way. I don't want to stereotype that, but I just think that it would be a cool barbecue. Yeah, it'd probably be on the beach, right? It would probably yeah. have delicious fresh fruits. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand Tulsi Gabbard is a vegetarian, so it probably would not have the roast pig that I'm in that I'm picturing. But I, I kind of with you from um, from a party point of view, I think she could host a good one. On the other hand, John Delaney from Maryland, maybe he'd have crab at his barbecue. Ooh, I do, I do like, like crab. I do like crab. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with Tulsi for barbecue, but not for anything else. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Let's play again. Here are. Oh, here is a good and interesting choice. So do you want to go to the barbecue of Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg? Oh, so Kamala Harris, apparently, but this might be a whole social media ploy, actually does cook and cooks a lot mm. um, and seems to make very good food. And she's also a fan, apparently, of fried potatoes in Yum. various forms. And I am also a huge fan 
of fried potatoes in various forms. And I haven't heard among, you know, Buttigieg's many talents, I haven't heard about a cooking talent. Right. So you're going to go with Team Kamala. I am. Yeah, I think that is a, that's a really tough call for me because honestly, I would love to go to a barbecue by either of these people. I bet it would be super fun. Pete Buttigieg, I don't know how the food would be, but I would love to party with Chastin. I just think he would be really good value at a barbecue. Yeah, but, no, I was thinking about that too. I was like, are spouses included <laughs> in this question? Or are spouses not included? I'll tell you what, I'm going to do it this way. I will go to Pride with Pete and Chastin, and I will go to a July 4th barbecue with Kamala and Doug. Um, and I, I, I think, yeah, because I, I think you're right. Kamala looks like a fabulous cook. There was a there was a Twitter thread she did where she was. they were asked about favorite food, and she said she likes French fries, basically. And then her husband posted this photograph of, like, some rosemary sea salt chips that she'd apparently made that looked amazing and I basically just want to eat them so I'm with you on the on the fried potato front yeah I saw that part too that's why I was just like I want to be there and I want to try this recipe (laughs) (laughs) okay I've got two more very interesting barbecue choices for us now would you celebrate the fourth with either New Jersey Senator Cory Booker or previously mentioned Julian Castro oh could you go first on this one? Because I don't, may not know enough. Okay, I'm going to go first on this one because I have a strong view on it, which is totally unfair to members of the vegan community. So I'm going to apologize up front because I know Corey is vegan and I love that. I love the environmentalism of it. I love the animal welfare aspects of it. I commend him. But on the, on the 4th of July, I want meat. <laughs> And I would also love to try a Latino-infused July 4th celebration because guacamole is one of my favorite um, celebratory dips, especially in summer months, anything with avocados. Mm -hmm. So I'm envisioning a really lovely meat-based feast with the Castro family. Um, And as much as I would love to party with Cory Booker on other occasions, I I probably am going to go with Julian in this one. Yeah, I mean, I would like to hang out with um, either of them. I think our first one between Gabbard and the other guy, I was like, I don't want to hang out with either of these people. So I'm going to go <laughs> for food. Um, but this time, I, I think I would hang out with either of them. I, I think it would be a really good time. So I am at a loss. I do like, um, you know, Tex-Mex and kind of anything that has avocado and spices and everything in it. But you know what? Vegans have to be really creative in order to have good food. So You're I right. could see Cory Booker also having proper seasoning of his food. So you know what? I, I think it's a draw for me. You know what? I think that's fair. And I, I welcome the Twitter hordes that will soon come at me um, of vegans telling me all their delicious July 4th recipes. <laughs> bring them to me. That is fine. I'm happy to have my mind open on this question. Should we do one final one? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So last one, interesting choice here, quite a contrast. Would you barbecue with Amy Klobuchar or Marianne Williamson? Oh, okay. So Marianne Williamson, perhaps because for background to listeners who do not know, I'm from California, uh, is very familiar to me as a personality. 
Um, and while not my personality at all, if you can't tell, someone that I know how to deal with and I'm comfortable with. And then Amy Klobuchar, I just don't have a good read on yet. I don't know how I would feel just like chilling and talking with Amy Klobuchar. So I'm going to go with Marianne Williamson. Interesting. Okay. I think I'm almost choosing the opposite for the exact same reason, uh, i.e. Amy Klobuchar, I totally get where she's coming from. I'm not from Minnesota, but I am a kind of, I'm from the Northeast and I relate to her kind of um, slightly waspy cold weather vibe that she has going on. She also has a fondness as expressed on her social feeds for, um, well, Minnesota hot pot and like hot dishes and big casseroles and things, which are the least healthy thing in the world, but I absolutely love them and they can just bring them on. Um, And Marianne Williamson, because she is very California, as you say, I just find myself a lot of the time in company with the personality type that you're talking about, just kind of keeping a smile on my face and pretending not to be really confused. So (laughs) I think I'd probably go with Amy on that one. Sorry, Marianne. (laughs) I'm now frantically Googling whether Marianne Williamson has released a cookbook because she totally (laughs) would have. Seems like a very her thing to do, doesn't it? Yeah, but I can't find it in time, unfortunately. Well, and now I'm going to look and see if there's a Klobuchar casserole cookbook somewhere, because I now kind (laughs) of want one. (laughs) But listen, thank you so much for your time, Um, Asha. That was fantastic and really interesting. And, um, you know, next time, barbecue's on me, okay? All right. Sounds good. Always glad to be here. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And that's it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Karen JR. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. If you are an American living back home, don't forget to register um, to vote or request your absentee ballot if you're an American living overseas. If you're an American back home, you can register um, and request your absentee ballot at vote.org. And if you're an American overseas, you can register to vote and request your absentee ballot at votefromabroad.org. I hope you and your family have enjoyed a wonderful 4th of July this week and thank you for continuing to listen and stay with me on my journey to make America the place that we know it can and should be. Have a great week. Speak to you next Friday.